coming on the Agony Column podcast. We have the vision of the future pretty much set. A conversation with Faith Popcorn, futurist for the Fortune 500. We think we know, we believe we know, we have been right about what's going to happen. And then we say to our clients, and here's where you fit. You have to fit into the future. The future doesn't have to fit with you. The future is a totally open and endless entity. It's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. Next on the Agony Column podcast. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Faith Popcorn is the founder of Faith Popcorn's Brain Reserve, a collection of noted thinkers and futurists who for over 30 years have advised her clients on how to anticipate and plan for the future. She's been called the Nostradamus of marketing. Welcome to the program, Faith. Thank you so much. 30 years ago, you're looking at a career. What drew you to futurology? I can't imagine there were many booths for that at the college job fair. Well, I think I was always able to do this, put together dots of information, and for me, it drew a picture of the future. Also, I think it's genetic. My father was uh, heading the C. It was called the CID then, Criminal Investigation Division of the Army, in Shanghai, where I grew up. So I think I learned a lot from my father in terms of you know what, you know how you how you solve something, how you investigate something, how you look for clues. You started out working in advertising, did you? Yes, unfortunately. And how did that lead you to business and predicting the future? Well. You know, when I worked for an agency, and and one of the things that got me here was the realization that agencies usually, or certainly at that time, talk to a client, and then whatever they needed to do, they did in the form of a you know a spot, a thirty second spot, or then a sixty second spot. And I realized that that wasn't the way to position a brand because because it's a lot bigger than that. And all the answers can't be the same. Let's do a spot. But that's how they earn their money, so that's what they came up with. So I saw the positioning of brands as as really injecting the brand into the culture. I saw the positioning of the brand as um, figuring out where the brand was going, what the future competitive set would be, what people would be needing. Everything I ever did started with would be and will be. I realized that I had to graduate from that, you know, from advertising. And I opened my own company when I was about 26 years old, 27 years old, called Faith Popcorn's Brain Reserve. And it was more or less a boutique agency. And then we we worked in, a, we always worked in, a, that's why we called it Brain Reserve, in a group, in a team where we recruited uh, what we thought to be very smart people and we problem solved together, brainstormed, or as we called it then, brain jammed. And we still call it that. And right now we have a, probably an 11,000-member talent bank globally where we still reach out and, and, and brainstorm with people and ask them what they're working on. So if we find out that some uh, um, genetic genius is working on how to blend two eggs to produce a embryo, we kind of take bets. Is that really going to be something? And if it is, and if, if that doctor, uh, uh, genetic engineer is successful, what will it mean to the ethics in society? What will it mean to the future of society? What will it mean to everyday, you know, um, relationships? 
And that's sort of how we draw the lines of the future. I mean, that's one one example. I'm wondering if you care to talk about it. It seems to me when you're the subjects that you deal in are really big and, and quite important. And there could be two kind of approaches to this, a more academic approach where you're looking at the future as just trying to get a general idea of what the shape is and, and then presenting that information to the world as a, as a report in, in what you did with uh, the popcorn report, I guess, in 1991, or in a, in a more uh, business sense where you're trying to say, help your clients decide, well, this is where you inject yourself into the culture to make sure your brand lasts. So could mm-hmm. you talk about the tension between those two different kinds of ways of looking at the future? You know, our, our Faith Popcorn's Brain Reserve is not an academic enterprise. It's a for-profit organization where we are hired by Fortune 500 clients and they ask us, you know, where is this, where's our brand going in the future? What do we do with this brand? And what we do is we uh, draw the landscape of the future. We say, well, here's where the future is, and here's where your brand will is and will be. Here's the tra- trajectory of the brand. And here's, you know, the plan to weave it into the culture and make sure it's viable. Or here's how to, the brand has to be repositioned or changed. Or, by the way, people are not going to want to, you know, drink stuff or eat stuff with a lot of chemicals in it. So here's where we're going to have to rescope or explain or become something different. So it really is blends. You know, first we have our vision. We understand where it's going. And that's probably, in a way, a more interesting conversation. And here's what it means to a particular brand or a company in their efforts to, you know, stay a little bit, and I say a little bit, because it makes people always nervous to stay way ahead of the curve. But at least we show them where the curve is. And most of the time, the response to that is um, amazement, negativity, fear. I, I can't remember any time that we ever told a client anything where they said, oh, really? Well, gee, that's interesting. It's usually, oh my God, that can't happen. So um, that's our bane, in other words. It's our job to convince. And I think that's where my background, you know, my parents were both attorneys. My father was a criminal lawyer, uh, building a case for the future. Because you can't prove the future. You can only uh, describe it in circumstantial evidence. So, like, we describe it. You know, we say, well, you know, people are going to want to know where their food comes from because there's going to be some scares um, I can show you in our work, and that's why we write our books to document our thinking. So I'll, I can show you in our work where, where we said in a particular book or a particular page, you know, food source will be a, an issue. And then you see China, and now dogs die, and now the cats are dying, and now the shrimp are maybe poisonous. And you see that the food sources globally, not just in in the U.S., are questionable. They've been sprayed too much. I was just discussing with your engineer water filtration. Everybody's Alice Waters, for example, talk about water. The genius restaurateur um, just took all the bottles out of her restaurant. She will not serve water in a bottle. She's filtrated her systems and carbonated her systems and says she does not want to add to the garbage of the world. Now, that's very interesting. As soon as she did it, two more people uh, two more restaurateurs did it. As soon as they did it, I think it's in San Francisco, the mayor is also starting to ban bottles. So you see, that's how a trend starts rolling, starts like gathering energy. And when it gathers energy, let's say our 
client is, you know, a, a soft drink company or a bottle company, we, you know, we kind of report this. Actually, reported this about three years ago, but we had no evidence at all. So people go, oh, no, well, my goodness, if that happened, we'd actually have to change things. So they don't want to do that. You know, it's expensive. It's difficult. So now we have some even, you know, evidence. And then we say, what are you going to do? You're going to have to supply containers, and those containers are going to have to be filled at a central source. And then we build a scenario around that and see what that looks like. That's an example of, you know, a prediction that means something to a, uh, a Fortune 500 company. I wonder if you'd care to talk about this process, what you call brailing the culture. This is a really interesting term. Tell me what that means and how you do it. All right, brailing the culture. Brailing the culture, you know, we we, um, made up that term. As we have to make up our own language, you know, cocooning, as an example, is something that we had to make up to describe a syndrome of looking for protection at home. And cocooning actually made the dictionary, which was fun, but... Brailing is like closing your eyes and feeling the culture, using your senses to feel the culture. So out of brailing, we create, out of that concept, we create trend tracks. So we actually walk our clients and through, let's say we'll go down to the East Village and we'll show them different retail environments or we'll show them different, you know, kind of drinks that are being served or we'll, um, you know, take them... Um, through the internet and braille that way, take them to different locations and start to prove a theme. The theme could be sustainability or it could be like I just saw downstairs. You see, when you braille, you braille, as a matter of fact, your whole life is a kind of not very relaxing because you're always brailing right down here in your building on 42nd Street. I saw downstairs in your um, in your building, um, Pret-a-Manger, where it says in the window, it's a sandwich of organic when we can. I thought, I have, that's interesting. Because it's very difficult to be 100% organic because a lot of times organic, you know, is kind of like rotty and, and, and not as delicious or by the time it gets there or it's like very questionable because if you if you move organic food in a non-organic truck, if non-organic food has touched the truck, it's like being kosher. It's not organic anymore. So they said organic when we can, which takes a little bit of the pressure off the enterprise, but says we're trying to move in that direction. Well, and it's I also think more cons- expensive, too. Oh, it's very expensive. Yeah. And 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 you'll see a lot of companies moving to fresh, you know, rather than organic. You'll see, you know, some like, or, like I know a company that's gone organic. It's a, a, a large chain. So we're organic. And yet in that manifesto, if the grain prices of the chick, you know, for the chickens that they eat grain exceeds a certain amount, they can feed an organic chicken, non-organic grain, and still call it organic. You have to read the fine print all the way at the end of the end, end of the manifesto. So then the consumer, let's say I bring this up now, you know, so some consumers go, "Wow, that's sneaky," you know. So then they don't, they discount the whole organic thing. So I thought organic when we can is at least a little bit more honest. And um, I think consumers are going to look for honesty. So when we're brailing, you know, that's some of the we, – we're looking at rip and stitch that consumers like to add stuff to their brands already. So they'll take a Nike shirt and they'll 
overlay um, like an Adidas. It drives brands crazy, brand makers. They'll, they'll overlay an Adidas and they'll stitch it on. And then over that, maybe um, they'll overlay like a Comme des Cassons thing. They rip and stitch. They rip the brand apart and stitch it back together the way they want it. And I think you're going to see that's the economic trend. Economics means customization, ego, the economics of marketing to the individual, the ego. Economics is going to be a lot about customization and consumers wanting to play in their brands, play with them and in them. You presumably give your clients some written document. Is that correct? Well, we either give them a document or a room. Uh, A room? So sometimes we'll do a three-dimensional presentation where they can keep the room, and it's actually a more effective way. It's it's it takes longer, it's more expensive, but um, at least you're dimensionalizing your thinking. Well, this is a fascinating concept. Uh, I, what I was wanted to get at is the role of language in what you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, Very important. We know that, for example, in in the realm of science fiction, they create words in science fiction to describe technologies that don't yet exist. And then when those technologies come into being, the words are already out there in the culture landscape. And one of the you know most famous one is spaceship. It was created in the 1890s and not till the 1930s that we call them spaceships. We didn't call them astrogators or something else. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you care to talk about how you choose your language in, in the reports and the way you structure these 3D rooms. Well, you know, the, it's interesting that you bring that up. By the way, if there are any brilliant writers out there, please write to me. I need writers, brilliant writers at um, uh, fpopcorn at faithpopcorn.com because I need writers that can use language. We struggle with language. You know, when we write a deck, we have to almost create a new language to to describe our ideas. So as I said, we created cocooning. One of our trends is atmosphere with an F. That's, you know, it's fear of what's out there. We we, we, we uh, named and framed that trend probably in 88. Uh, cashing out where people are just giving up, you know, their, their, their money drives and, and, and saying, how little can I live on? And leaving like corporate America and the big business world. Icon toppling, we don't believe in the icons anymore. We don't believe in the police, the, you know, the... Well, I personally love the fire department, but we don't believe in big companies. Um, we don't believe in the FBI. We don't believe in the CIA. We don't believe in the court system. We don't believe in the president president's office. We we think everything's fixed and 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 generated by money. Um, we think wars are created to make more money. I mean, icon toppling. Icon toppling has been in our trend bank and in our language at Brain Reserve for like almost thirty years. So, yes, language and how we state something is very, very important, and it is a struggle. That's why I like the rooms better, because maybe you can demonstrate. You can demonstrate what's what's happening rather than uh, write about it. Could you describe one of these rooms to me? This sounds really fascinating. Let's say we do a room, and in the room we would have a playlet and I, we have some fabulous, one in particular named Alex Denelarius, who's a brilliant young playwright who's just coming on the scene now, write a script or write a play that dimensionalizes a particular uh, group. Like he'll write a young mother's script, what it's like to be a young mother, or mother 35, the struggles of a single mother. And you'll hire actors? Act, actors, yeah. Actually, the audience went up and talked to the actors as though they were consumers. Wow. It was so well done. 
and the actor said, I'm an actor. I'm, you know, they couldn't get over it. So they do a wonderful, like a, a, like a, maybe a monologue or they'd act out something. And then in the room, we'd show the, you know, a typical household and the cereal that was on the floor uh, was like organic and, you know, or it was Captain Crunch. You know, the, every detail that the, um, the, the, the books on the shelves, the stuff in the medicine cabinet, and we have marketers walk through a room and really experience it. And then we, that's, a, that's a current room, and then we might go to a future room where the walls change or messages are received or, you know, there are, um, it's so highly technical without, with, without it being difficult. So, you know, somebody could be talking to their mother, but their mother could not be, uh, you know, alive anymore. Maybe this young woman is talking to her mother, but her mother is, like, computer-generated because her mother recently died, or talking to her grandmother, letting her kids explore the neighborhoods where she, you know, her their great-great-great-grandfathers grew up in, and then projecting forward to see what it will be like, and, and communing with other people on the planet in a in a single translatable language that everybody can understand. So, you know, that's like we do present. We very rarely do past. So we do present, future. You know, here's where it is. Here's where it's going. And um, and um, what does it mean to you? Well, this is very interesting because I had more the impression that your reports were somewhat dry. And that here what you're telling me is that you're actually writing fiction to demonstrate to your clients what the future will be like to give them well, a more powerful feel. Yeah, you know, we don't really produce reports. I know people think we do because it was called the Popcorn Report. We don't actually we don't have this newsletter. We have um a, a website, you know, faithpopcorn.com if people come on. And we have some interesting thoughts and theories and we define our trends and we have our people talking. But but um the reports is more I don't know, in in real time for our clients most often. So, but those are but those are written reports. One yes, thing, those are written reports, mm-hmm. but they're not dry, and they're not long. Now, you you claim ninety five percent accuracy in your your predictions. I never said that about myself. Oh, okay. <laughs> about your company? It's too obnoxious. Oh. No, people have said that about us. Oh, okay. That um, we have a ninety five percent accuracy rate. One thing that strikes me about when you're writing about the future. There's what I would call a, a placebo effect in that you, when you uh, create a scenario, a vision of the future, and then wait for that future to arrive, it's kind of easy to look back and say, yes, I, to, to equate the, your pet vision from the past with your experience in the present just because you naturally want them to be the same. So I'm wondering if there's a way in your language when you're doing this that you either acknowledge that effect or try to prevent that from happening. Explain it again to me. I'm not sure well, I understand. Well, there, predictions sometimes seem to be self-fulfilling. You write something. I see. And, and if, if so the language is, making... a little, is a little vague sometimes, maybe you can say, yeah. oh, okay, yeah, shoot. See, this is what I said. It's really happening. I'm wondering how you prevent that. We don't even deal there. This Like, like the Nostradamus of marketing, for example, Andy Serwer at Fortune... He, he called us that, said that, mm-hmm. or a 95% accuracy rate. You know, it's not a horse race. You know, we don't, we don't do it that way. We do not make the future. 
we put together what we think is the evidence of what the future will be. And I don't think people are filling in the dots and making it real because we said it was going to happen. We're also not that vague. I mean, we're specific. We say, like what I said, we said, there will be no more bottles. That is specific. That's very specific. Right? Yes. And all of our, if you look back at our work, Popcorn Report, then there was um, Clicking, there's um, Evolution, which is about how women buy, women, Hispanics, blacks, and men under 40, we group them, how they buy, how the language has to be different for them, you know, what they need, what they want. There are specific observations and future predictions in there that you could actually say, had well, that happened, how'd they know that? And it's not that we are psychic, it's that we are putting together the information, I think, in a very interesting way, the present information. We're also able to, one of the things we do is project way forward. I can project to, and it's pretty easy, um, you can project easily to 2030, 2030, and look back and figure out the timeline. That's the genius. When is it going to happen? Because we're telling companies, okay, no more bottles. Well, how quickly should they start to think about this? Withdraw, you know, their, figure out other ways to package. You know, when, you know, how do you do it in the right time? Timing is everything, and it really is everything. And um, I think that's our great, I don't know, talent. I wonder if you care to talk about the role uh, of secrecy in, in what you do, in that it, when you take a look at the future and, and make a projection of the future, if everybody knows about it, then nobody really gets ahead. And so I wonder if you care to talk about uh, maintaining client confidentiality and maintaining mm -hmm. consultant confidentiality. Mm -hmm. Well, we're extremely confidential because we're hired by a particular client and we don't deal with, their, obviously, their competition. We never take, let's say, a Coke and a Pepsi. We would never do that. So I think that we, we're a very small group. We're only like 60-something people. And everybody signs, you know, big confidentiality statements. And we understand that we're giving our clients an edge. But here's the rub in all this. Most people don't believe us anyway. So we could come out and we could shout it from the rooftops and they wouldn't, nobody would do anything about it. This is the Cassandra show effect. You, it is. I can show you example after example. There has never been... I cannot think of one prediction where a client or a person just said, oh, that's definitely going to happen. My goodness. Oh, my goodness. What should we do? Let's, like, get to work quickly and, like, you know, do what we need to do. Never. So I don't think confidentiality is actually a, um issue. Although we do, we're, we, you know, we are confidential. I don't think we'd have to be, really. I wonder if you care to talk this two kind of ways of approaching the future. Uh, one way is a straightforward extrapolation. We're here now. Tomorrow we'll be there. Next week we'll be there. Next month we'll be there. Next year we'll be there. Five years from now we'll be there. Ten years from now we'll be there. As uh, Basically uh, building up little bits of evidence to move forward. The other way is to just close your eyes and you know put your fingers on your forehead and go, oh my God, I have seen the future, and it is blank, a, a more visionary, intuitive leap. Could you tell about talk about using those two different methods of looking at the future? One is more holistic. The second one will say, for instance, and we have said, there, and we're getting close. It's interesting. It's not so future anymore. There will be a room you walk into, a virtual room. 
you'll spend a lot of your time in this room because the planet's going to be in disarray and because, you know, life is getting more and more difficult, more and more scary. And you'll be able to, in this room, play. I mean, you know, project to the future, as I said, have conversations with people all around the world, have conversations with future people if you want. Um, you'll be able to shop you know, for your groceries. And we've got tremendous pushback on that. And you see it's already happening that you can pick out your tomatoes and your bananas. And it doesn't take a genius to go to the supermarket. It's interesting that super, this is my particular, one of my peeves. I have quite a list, but this is one of them. Supermarket people are usually male. And they believe that women have a wonderful time in the supermarket and that they love the supermarket. And women wouldn't know what to do if the supermarket wasn't going to exist. So they totally ignored the idea of home delivery. And because they couldn't really solve the model economically because they're just not you know, there yet, they just said that's never going to happen. Well, we interview probably 6,000 women one-on-one -on -one interviews every year. I've been doing that for 30 years. Women hate to go to the supermarket. They love to go to a bakery, you know, but it's boring. Why would they want to go? So we, so in this virtual room, you know, you'll go to the supermarket. You'll say, I want a tomato. They'll say, what kind of tomato? Do you like um, cherry tomato? Do you like an heirloom tomato? What color tomato? Um, do you want an enhanced tomato with vitamin C, D, and E? Do you want a tomato with birth control in it? I mean, that's the degree of customization that there's going to be. Or maybe you want tomato soup. Hey, are you buying these tomatoes to make tomato soup? You don't have to do that. We've done that for you. We'll deliver the tomato soup. Or, you know, do you want a little history of this tomato? Or do you want uh, tomatoes that enhance your intelligence? Cancer-fighting tomatoes, you know. That's the so when you look at it that way, and that thing arrives in your doorstep, and and then they'll say, "Well, suppose I'm not home." People are so literal at the client side, so you're not home. So there's going to be a lockbox, or actually your refrigerator. And we've written about this will be loaded from the back. Now all of a sudden, like GE and others are coming out with um with um shopping lists that generate from your refrigerator. It's about a minute away where those shopping lists, the refrigerator realizes you're low on milk. You know, it, it, it calls out to your supermarket delivery system and milk is loaded from the back. Packaging will not be there. We're not gonna get a container of milk. It's gonna be loaded into the milk bin. Eliminate containers. Um, that's what it's gonna be like. And it's out of that virtual room you're going to be able to, it's almost like it's the heroine of the future. Now, if you don't believe that interactivity is heroin, look at the gaming phenomenon or illness, I could call it, or addiction that you're seeing now. Kids are on these games 36 hours, uh, you know, at a stretch. And it, we predicted, you know, all, you know, the, the, the involvement and the interaction with, um, with the computer. Gaming is a major, major addiction. And now, you know, some brands are starting to see, yeah, maybe they want to pop up in a game or sell you a pizza in a game or because there's very little, uh, there's not a big wall between I'm in the game and reality. It is their reality. So, yes, they will order food. Now, the food now has to come in reality. So you order food in the game, the pizza comes to your door. So there's a lot of morphing and mushiness between reality and virtual. Is virtual reality virtual? Or is what we know as life virtual? Could you tell me, this virtual closet, what would you, to me that seems like a pretty straightforward extrapolation of our current technology. Yep. Could you 
give me an example of something you predict or have either. But we predicted that in 19, probably 88. Wow. That now that that that's uh, that's that's quite good. Could you give me an example of a prediction that came out of a more intuitive leap forward rather than rather than stacking, um, you know, we can see where the technology is going. It's just we just have to wait for it to arrive. Could you give me an example of something that kind of a, a flash that came to you out of the blue? I like that question because nobody's ever asked me that. That's excellent. Well, would you say, you know, intelligent enhancement? You see, I think that you won't have to go to school anymore because you'll have a chip inserted. I want to speak French today. Well, this is... I'm going to France. This is all uh, part of the... um, This Well, let's talk... This brings up up the... um, Intelligent enhancement is another kind of, I think, we've, we're seeing that, you know, again, that's pretty much Ge- clockwork. Genetic genetic fiddling in vitro? No, that's clockwork, too. We saw, I mean, Huck, Huxley did that. I'm, I think, actually, a, okay. a better example might be a cocooning, which is something that I don't think anybody really saw. Okay, so in 1981, we said that people would look for a safe place. That seems like hiding to- Hiding under your desk in a big way. So, you know, how when you're kids, you hide under the desk or hide under the bed, but there would be a global, you know, cocooning. At first, it was like warm and cozy. We'd say like a decorator's like Mario Bowata in those days. Like he made cute little chintzy, you know, that was his style. And people were holed up in their cocoon. And Martha Stewart came along and, you know, she was a friend. And we talked a lot about that. She said cocooning really influenced her. And so she made gardening, you know, and home cooking fun and decorating fun. Then we started to see that the garden became the like the um, almost like the barrier between your inside cocoon and the outside world. Then there became like maybe like we'd notice like alarm system sales were going up and guard dog sales were going up. People were buying guard dogs, alarm systems and filtration systems and they were going in and in and in and inner, you know. And you know, we, we, it's almost a sus- want, looking for a suspension uh, of reality into you, like your, your, your cocoon, being inside, being safe, being self sufficient. So, all the little extrapolations of that, like, you know, knowing where things are grown, growing close to home, vic- what, what used to be called victory gardens, but like vegetable gardens. Trying to become self-sufficient and getting off the grid, and that's icon toppling because you don't believe the grid can get blown up. We've seen that. I'd like to talk to you about different types of futures. Sure. There's different kind of visions of the futures. There's what a lot of people believe in what I would call what's called a lapsarian future, that the world was perfect back in the Garden of Eden, and it's been going downhill since, and eventually we're going to gutter out and we'll have the apocalypse, and that every year things are getting worse and worse and worse. Then we have kind of a competing with that vision of the future. We have a progressive future where it's, you know, it's a great big beautiful tomorrow. Technology is getting better every day and it's going to solve all our problems. And then we have a, a kind of a, a hybrid of the two, which is you were somewhat alluding to earlier, uh, the singularity future where man and machine are conjoined in some fashion that they'll – the ability to change the human will equal our ability to – Change, upgrade uh, well to upgrade machines. So rather, right mm-hmm. now we evolve very slowly. But when you can just uh, re re up put a new chip in your brain every eighteen months and you're now twice as smart, 
That mm-hmm. changes things significantly. So I'm wondering if you would talk about how these different views of the future, I mean, do people come to you who have this kind of lapsarian view and say, it's all going to end soon. How can we stop it? Nobody says that, but they should be. Uh, so I mean, you, they should be saying that. And why do it's you say not that? Enough because I think that it's very, the, the trajectory is so apparent, isn't it? Ethics are falling apart. Food sources getting threatened. Political, you know, the political position. You know, Nostradamus did say that it would come out of the uh, Middle East. There would be like wars and, you know, pestilence and the 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 oceans would start exploding and the tsunamis and now i don't, i mean i don't usually project that kind of thinking because i don't think it's good i think a lot of what happens is what we project so that's not my style necessarily but i think people should be a lot more worried about what seems to be the obvious projection you don't have to be a futurist to see where it's going this is a fascinating uh, concept you just brought up that we're I, not in a good place, are we? No, 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 and it doesn't appear to be getting better. I, I would certainly. Agree. Oh, it's not, definitely not getting better. Where America was like in control, it was so fantastic, really. You know, like we ran the world practically. Now we're not perfect. We did some really mean and nasty things, but now we're not. You know, but at least we had like the, that American ethic or whatever. But now it's like we're not running it. Moreover, our ethics are 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 not and are not in admired by anyone, even the citizens of America. Yeah, why should they be? Um, one thing you were talking about that was very interesting is that when we describe the future, we to a certain extent create it. So one of the things that you're doing when you predict the future, when you create your reports, and when you create these rooms, is you're also creating the future. Could you talk about you? The language you use to create the future, and also I think this is interesting. Using you are using fiction, aren't you? You're in a sense writing science fiction in those rooms. I think I'm writing science reality, not science fiction. Why would you say? Well, now wait. <laughs> because it's not fiction. You've it's got... real. It's just future real. But what? So what's the difference between say? Uh, a play that's unfolding in one of your rooms in which a young mother is is having a problem 10 years from now and a science fiction novel in which a young mother is having problems 10 years from now? Because it may be the same story, but I think what we're doing, you know, our, our bend is, as I say, about like brands and what people will be buying and using and doing and influencing the makers of those uh, technologies or brands to create uh, to create things that people will need. So I, I'd say it has a different emphasis, different different reason for being. One, I'm I'm familiar. Wondering if you're familiar with uh, Arthur C. Clarke. He's you know one of the first futurists. He created yeah. the communication satellite. He has some really interesting laws. His his laws about the predicting the future. And one thing he says is that when a distinguished but elderly scientist states that something is possible, he is almost certainly right. When he states that something is impossible, he is very probably wrong. Because people think older people are old-fashioned, you mean? 
when you look at the future in an open manner and say that something is possible, then you're likely to be right because there's a lot of and anything can happen in the future. But when you try to close down the future, which is what mm -hmm. uh, many an elderly scientist will do, you're very probably wrong. So I'm wondering if you could talk about these kind of ways of like either trapping the future or opening it up and how you do that and how you do that, for example, in your rooms with these plays that you do. Well, opening the future, the future is open doesn't need me to open it. It's totally open. So we say we're in probability. You know, we say this is more likely, we believe, to happen than that. And that lets you write a scenario as a marketer about what 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 you need to fulfill, you know, what you... For instance, I'm going to give you such a, a kind of, like, down-to-ground idea. We worked with Tylenol. This is a published case. I can talk about it. And, you know, Tylenol is a wonderful, you know, drug for, you know, pain, right? And um, we said that these young gamers will be having new kinds of pain. That was a projection, a little science. They're going to be having neck pain and, um, and uh, like, eye, eye pain from looking at those screens and phantoms, and their backs will hurt. And we kind of positioned Tylenol in there as a, you know, as a, uh, as a help for, for those people, young people that were in that kind of pain. The we legal drug create... of choice for video gamers. <laughs> exactly. A new application without, go, you know, without, you know, just a new application, a new safe application. Would an old scientist, you know, I'm saying that we knew about gaming, we knew where it's going, you know, so then Tylenol comes along and we go, oh, you know, that's a beautiful connection and you know, people are going to need that, younger people. That's just an application. So we do a lot of application. We have the vision of the future pretty much set, as you say in these reports. We know what's going to, we think we know, we believe we know, we have been right about what's going to happen. And then we say to our clients, and here's where you fit. You have to fit into the future. The future doesn't have to fit with you. The future is a totally open and endless entity. So, you know, it's so funny. I grew up with a Captain video. So it's 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 really the idea, and, and of course Star Trek, that there has to be new planets and there has to be new places to go because this planet is certainly not doing well. And I don't think we're smart enough or fast enough to make it right. Do you think that we'll be able to escape this planet? Do you think that space travel... We'll have to. You think we all have? Yes. And yes, when do you do. think when do you think that will start to happen? I mean, or it's starting and how? to happen. Well, it's starting to happen already. Yeah, but I mean, this is only. Well, do for... you think they? Do you think they tell us everything? <laughs> That's my CIA background. I don't think so. We don't even know half the story. So you think that there's a more space exploration going on than we know about? Yes, I do. And I'm wondering. Do you think that some of this is commercial, commercial exploitation of of extraterrestrial resources? I mean, not not uh, necessarily civilizations. I mean, just stuff outside the Earth, like mining comets or whatever. What do you mean? Well, do you think that that corporate that are do you think that corporations are currently exploiting uh, space travel? No, I don't. Huh? I don't think. I think corporations are doing everything they can do to keep the present alive. No. I don't think it's them. Like, for instance, let's talk about artificial intelligence or cloning of human beings. Okay. Let's talk about artificial intelligence first. I like that subject. 
Okay, artificial or cloning. Let's clone. Okay, so we in America go, cloning is not allowed of human beings, right? That's what we're told. Right. I mean, couldn't you just roll around on the carpet and laugh? And and that's it, do you think? I mean, do you think that that's it? I'm quite sure, and I don't know why I always think it's a very cold country, like in some cold country like Sweden or somewhere like that. Cloning, I mean, people are working on that. Of course they are. Well, we've, Of course they are. We've had cl- claims of, of cloned humans, but, but no, none of them have been proven heretofore. The people that are working on it, I don't think they've solved it. You know, I, you know, I don't. I hope not. I don't think so. But I think they're working on it. And they're not just get, working on it to get on to, you know, the, to get on to 2020 or 60 minutes ago, I cloned something. That's not what they're doing. Do you read science fiction? Do you look to the science fiction genre? I really genre? don't. I don't really read science fiction. Now I'm going to read more of it. What brings that decision about? I don't want to be influenced. And I don't see myself in the science fiction realm. I mean, I know we're, you know, you're talking a lot about science fiction. A futurist, in a way, is different than science fiction. I think, as I say, I'm doing, I'm doing reality, not fiction. It's just future reality. Well, I, the the thrust these days among science fiction writers, they gen, generally tend to agree that they're not talking about the future. There's so much happening in the world today that we really can't even wrap our brains around, and especially technologically. So one of the, the things that science fiction does is it creates a future in which the technologies of the present are more easily comprehended because they're brought out to bear in some fashion. And I think I'm wondering if you see yourself as doing that. Tell me more. In trying to describe the future, do you think that you help your clients and yourselves understand the present better? I think we understand. Yes, when you know where you're going... You know where you are. I'd like you to tell me how you analyze the present. You could talk. Could you talk about some of your interviewing techniques, focus groups? Sure. We don't do focus groups. You don't do focus we hate groups. Focus groups. Okay. We despise focus groups. What we do is so now we believe, and I hope that we're right. That you know we have these seventeen trends, and they look at them as dots. You know, like cocoonings there, fantasy adventure, atmosphere, being alive, ninety nine lives. Da-da. And when we do an interview, we're looking through the lens of these trends. We believe these are future trajectories, each trend. Actually, it's one big trend, but nobody could understand it. We just go on and on, so we broke it up. So when we, when I talk to you, I'm saying, oh, he's talking about cocooning. Oh, he's pressing on fantasy adventure. Oh, he's talking about something I cannot, I cannot identify through one of our trends. Maybe it's something new. So that's how our interviews go. We have a talent bank of these ten or 11,000 people globally, so they'll write to us or call us or we'll be Skyping with them, and you know they'll say, oh, we're working on this and we're working on that, and we say, oh, that's really odd, interesting. Um, and Or they'll say there's, um, a matter of fact, one just told us there's a, a store in the subways or near the subways in Tokyo, and the stuff that they sell in this store is um, doesn't have a lot of stock behind it, so it keeps changing and changing and changing and changing. And people are so fascinated with it. So, like, you can't, like, you go in, you have to buy it because it's not going to be there the next time you go. The whole concept of, you know, this pop-upness, you know, pop-up stores, but there's going to be pop-up everything. Uh, so 
so so it's our trekking, it's our talent bank, it's the way we interview, our brain jams, how we brainstorm through the lens of the trends and through current and, and future almost information, you know, what people are thinking about or what, like if I know what you're working on or what you're doing, I, I'm saying that you're going to get there in about two years. Now, how does that affect society? So we do a lot of thinking about that. We we read, you know, a couple hundred publications in 20 languages. So we see like what's up. We monitor music we look at every single television, all many of the series, and we think about: Are there any new themes? What's what's it really about? What's the language? What's the what's the costume? What's new and different there? Is there anything new and different? So that gives us, and this is the part I can't explain. Kind of like when you jump off the roof with all of that, you get a picture. It kind of tells you not only where it is, but it sort of shows you where it's going. That is absolutely fascinating. It is? Yes. That's what, yeah, well, you should come hang out with us. I, I, That's what I, we do every single day. <laughs> but it's the black box. I can't tell you why when we get like this input, this is all input, right? Input, input, input. How come we're able to, you know, predict out? I call that just a particular kind of talent. When we interview people for that talent, some of them have MBAs, many of them don't, some of them didn't go to college, some of them did, you know, I find a lot of people that work for us have have parents that were entrepreneurs, so they're a little bit more free, I guess. We One of our interview questions is, tell us quick, tell us right now what's on your night table. You know, some of them don't have night tables. So like, you know, we try to get a feel, are they really fascinated with what's going on? And And that's 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 a must. They have to be fascinated with what's going on. We've been speaking with Faith Popcorn. She's the founder of the Brain Reserve, a noted futurist, and the Nostradamus of marketing. Thank you for joining me, Faith. Thank you so much. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.